Welcome to another Who's Your Mob podcast. This is James Henry, and this is a bit of a treat. We have the artistic director of the Yurimboy Festival here on this podcast, and he is also the creator and performer of Blood on the Dance Floor, amongst many other things. And yeah, it was great to have a chat with him. I've worked with Jacob Bowen on a few different projects over the last few years and most of them seem to be finding that balance of bringing traditional sounds and traditional culture and stories into contemporary contexts even if it's only just going to be say a performance for a broader non-aboriginal audience it was interesting to tease out what makes something aboriginal or not as well as his process with working with communities and how he's able to navigate himself through what could potentially be difficult terrain if you are not necessarily respectful or experienced. So, I hope you enjoy our little chat. Hope you get a bit of an insight into his practice and I hope you guys go along and see Blood on the Dance Floor and get along to Yurimboy Festival next year and make the most of it. So to tell you more about all of that, here he is, Jacob Bowen. From South Australia, Narunga and Ghana, mobs from Adelaide Plains and York Peninsula. All right, so I'm not familiar with uh, Adelaide mm. that much, so Narunga and Narunga's Ghana. down York Peninsula, so you know that little thing that looks like Italy, like a boot? Okay. That comes off like Port Augusta? Alright, is that So you go up to Adelaide, yep. that Ghana country there, yep. and then you drive over a little bit towards the west, and then okay. there's that little section that looks like, um, oh, it looks like a wadi. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, that's Narunga country. Alright. Yeah. And, oh, so with like uh, Ghana country or like mm-hmm. uh sometimes i see it spelt with the g or the k is it it's one of those things does it matter yeah i've only ever known it to be spelt with a k but we don't and i don't know why people did that yeah because there is no k sounds in ghana language <laughs> yeah all right so it's just common knowledge that it's spelt with mm. a k but it's pronounced with a more like with a the, g yeah yeah okay Interesting. Mm-hmm. But now you're living in corn country? Yeah, no, I was born here in okay. Fitzroy. Um, born in Fitzroy, grew up in Newport. Yeah. Mm. All right. But, but then through family you have those connections. Yeah, so Dad and his sisters moved over here in their teens before I was even a thought. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they came over here, like my aunties came over, lived in Melbourne when they were 12 or 13 and 14. They were here as nurses or um, training mm-hmm. as nurses. And then my dad moved over when he was 17. Yeah. They kind of raised themselves. Mm. All right. Yeah. I was born and raised up in Sydney and maybe probably from a similar distance, my grandparents moved from country New South Wales to be living in Sydney mm. uh, so you know my my mother and I was you know born and raised in Gadigal country mm. so 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Like so, you know, I guess basically, you know, like you're a Melbourneian. Yeah. What would you say? But then you, uh, but you identify as being a, you know, Garana, Naranga man. Well, that was it. I mean, you know, like, so dad's black, mum's white, and both parents, um, you know, raised us to identify as Naranga and Ghana. Yeah. Um, because we used to go back and forth all the time when I was a kid, when I was growing up. But then, you know, as you, you know, it's a weird one because, you know, yes, I am, I would consider Melbourne my home. And I've often said it, you know, like I feel like a poor excuse for a black fella sometimes because you take me away from Melbourne and that's when I get that craving, that, you know, that sickness for country to get back to country. And I, when I think about going on country, I think about coming to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. not going down to Point Pierce. Yeah. It's odd. It's odd. And then, you know, like we've been brought up, you know, our, our, our totems, like our main totem is Gorda, the shark, because we're saltwater people. We're all along the coast. Because um, I identify more with the Narunga side. I was raised more with my Narunga relatives than the Ghana mob in Adelaide. Um, but we're all... Mostly if you find someone who's Narunga, they'll be Ghana as well. Um, but then, you know, you look at different law around the country and, you know, you're supposed to take your totems from the place you're born. Yeah, right. You know? Mm. So in that sense, I would, you know, my totem should or could be Bunjalawa. Yeah. But I have no blood link here. Okay. But customary law, pretty much all around the country, would say that, you know, your totem is taken from the place that you're born. Yeah. It's an odd one, eh? Yeah. But I guess now you are so heavily involved with the local arts and culture. Mm. You know, probably uh, struggle to think of anyone who's more involved in the local traditional and contemporary art in this uh, you know, particular area. So, yeah, how has that come about like has that always been there have you always been embraced by the uh, Bunwarang and Wurundjeri well the um, okay so when my aunties arrived here in Melbourne they've been mates with um Arweet Auntie Carolyn since they were teens um been mates with Wurundjeri elders since they were teens so my family has been known amongst Melbourne mob for quite some time before I even came, you know, before I was even born. Um, Aunty Carolyn was the one that in my early 20s, when I was about 20 years old, was the one that, you know, kind of introduced me to NASDA. And that was where I went to study dance. And, you know, it was mainly, the week was full of mainly Western um, contemporary styles as well as you know their traditional ballet but we had a big focus on traditional dance and that was you know NASDA used to partner with lawmen and women from around the country on residencies that used to go over two years and it was through that that I started to really focus on a traditional dance practice and it was out of NASDA that I started working a lot with different mobs around the country. Mostly in 
Well, kind of cultural maintenance work. So particularly up north, um, Northern Queensland, Northern Territory, WA, and some in Central. My role would be as a contemporary dancer who, who dances traditional to bring contemporary styles into a community to engage young people. And then at the same time, I would be working with the song men and women to figure out once they were engaged in, you know, making a hip hop dance or making a, a film clip or making a puppetry show or whatever, how we would then influence their work by the old people bringing in the songs and the language and the dance. So it's a little bit of a tricky thing, but it was cultural maintenance because up north you've got a lot of the song, dance, culture, customary law, everything's kind of intact, but at threat of dying out because you've got generations of younger mob who would much rather, who would much rather stay on their mobile phone and watch Kanye West mm. than go out and do ceremony. Is that quite broadly recognised amongst communities as as a problem? Yeah, um, I'm not sure if it's broadly recognised, but the circles I travel in, it's kind of becoming critical, like some of that knowledge that is still intact, those songs, those ceremonies, those stories, um, you know, because some of those old men and women are passing away and quickly, and none of that stuff is being captured. Whereas down south, you've got the opposite, you know, like even where my family are from in Victoria, which was nicknamed the Killing Fields to New, to New South Wales, you've got some of the hardest hit um, places with colonisation, which did ban language, ban song, ban dance. So most of us are coming from these broken lines of customary law where it's not practiced daily, it's not as, um, uh, what would you say, you know, going to the ATM is probably more part of our lives than than some of our, our song and ceremony or even speaking in our own tongue. Mm. So what was the process of being able to incorporate some of those traditional songs and elements into the contemporary it was always it's always been different especially up up north um and it's always been how receptive the youth are because sometimes i can go in have gone into a group and everyone knows that's what i'm there to do we're going to make something contemporary but we're going to be working with this elder and that elder and that elder and you're going to learn this this and this and your job is to interpret that and put it into a puppetry show that has dance that has hip-hop that has um, live projection whereas the other way sometimes you have to be a bit more sneaky and it's all dependent upon how receptive the youth are mm. you have to get them engaged first into something that they really want to do and then introduce the law men and women, or the song men and women, into that kind of workshop space slowly until they become a major voice in the room. Yeah, right. Mm. And then what are they bringing? Like what actual, like are there particular moves or their particular songs, stories, how are they incorporating the traditional? 
Who you mean the... Um, oh, the, the traditional people, when, when they come into the room to then add their voice. What are some examples of what they have brought? Okay. All right, so um, one project I did up in Mornington Island, that was... Uh, okay, so the mandate for that one was very clear from the start. My role was to get the Mornington Island Dance Group up and running again, like fully functioning again, but create a contemporary dance work that could be a festival piece. And it was going to open Kayaf, oh God, back in 2011, 2012, I think it was. And that was, um, so I went up there, I started doing contemporary dance workshops, theatre workshops, all of that stuff with the youth, the young dancers. The um, old men and women were in the room the entire time. Um, and it was funny. Oh, God, it's always funny doing them because you do it in these open halls where, where everyone knows that you're in there doing something. So community end up bringing their lunch. They come and watch. They laugh because this contemporary dance crap is, is weird. Um, but then it's interesting, some of them older older mob, because they look at stuff and they'll, they'll go, ah, that move reminds me of da-da-da-da-da. And then all of a sudden, it's my job as a facilitator, because I know what my job is, it's my job then to pick up on that and go, what do you mean, Unc? Or what do you mean, aunt? It reminds you of that, tell me that story. And then by them telling that story, he will then test the young ones in the room mm. to see what it is they know to finish off the story. And then he'll challenge them, show him that dance, show him that one. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden you've got um, mob doing traditional dance in what is supposed to be a contemporary dance workshop. Yeah, yeah. And then so then I, as the facilitator of what those ideas are going to be for a bigger show, have to keep logging all of that stuff, take it back in with meetings with the elders and go, okay, so that's good. So what's this story? And then start plotting out the story. Yeah. Mm. So that one ended up, we ended up doing that work, uh, ended up becoming Tuatu, which was the, um, the story of the rainbow serpent's death. So we did that, we made a traditional dance piece and, and it was interesting because I had to work with about eight different songmen, old songmen, because there are so many, um, I don't know, this is going to sound gammon, but if you think of the Bible and you think of the books in the Bible and in, the, in those books there are those chapters that explain different sequences or events or happenings, so many different ceremonies kind of like that with little chapters and you can, they either become part of one big thing or they can be separated to form the one cycle or the one instance within a greater cycle. Okay. So we went, um, me and these old songmen ended up sitting under trees for hours, 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 days, 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 looking at all this, and they made up a new story. So they looked at all the different um, song cycles that they have, but then plucked this one, plucked that one, plucked that one, and made a, a new contemporary song line with old stories to make this story of the um, 
rainbow serpent even though that is a very a very old ceremony there were other things in there that we introduced um, from other ceremonies to kind of because you know you had to talk to them about okay so where's the dramatic tension in this where's the da 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 and they got it and so they started picking and plucking and started plotting out a narrative they are actually dramaturgs creating a new narrative yeah wow mm. so how is it being someone from the other side of the country coming up to then you know have trust in their culture and that's the big word trust so you don't really get to walk in and just work you know it's um sitting down with people, getting to know people, working, like, you know, doing jobs around the town, you know, proving, you know, you're not just a fly in, fly out, because most of those communities have had people, and usually white people, come in, steal a story, put it on stage and tour it around the world. So there's a lot of mistrust or distrust in, you know, quote, foreigners, coming in from out of town to do art projects um, so the big thing is trust if you can yeah so my big thing is with um, building trust with the the law keepers first to get to let them know that my job is only as a facilitator I do have a job as a creative and if I'm employed as a choreographer my job is to create choreography that is then to be performed if I'm a director I need to be in charge of X, 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 X. This is the process, an, an explaining process about how we build, you know, how we build performance in a Western context. If they know that and they know what their role and my role is and we have an agreement on that and we can start to build trust knowing that those roles are defined because I've, I've always you know I'm not going to go in there and start telling people how to present their culture to the world um, my job is to kind of go actually from my experience down in Melbourne as a contemporary dance or theatre maker this is how you could present it your choice though mm. Mm. then how is it for people who might be used to say dancing in a ceremonial context mm. to then be able to bring that into you know more of a performance and where do you draw the lines between you know, I guess you know some of these stories are going to be much more because they have their purpose within the community and then mm. it's not necessarily for an outside audience where you, you have to be going for you know a certain duration you have to turn up on time and that's the uh, hard one got to be rehearsed and everyone got to be knowing what everyone else is doing that's the biggest hurdle is to train people to train that mob to to recognize the rules but i always go in and that's why i always go in with those projects when i'm leading a project like that those discrete little projects where it is based in like a contemporary theater outcome um, the, um, there's always, I always go into them with, okay, this is the, this is the mandate I've been given. This is what I have to deliver. This is the process I'm going to use. Um, 
this is the responsibility you have, this is the responsibility I have, um, and then it's a negotiation of the rules, because you can't just expect a mob to, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the youth I work with are mid, mid start range from about 15 through to the mid 20s, late 20s, out there, if they have got a job, good on them. Most of the time, they're on CDEP, you know, doing community work um, for the dole, or they're just on the dole. Um, a lot of the day is spent doing whatever the hell they like. So when you come into town and you go, I need you to turn up at 10am for rehearsal, you're going to be working at f until 5 or 6, every day, Monday to Friday, they're like, eh? Fuck that. Um, so basically, you have what I do rather than define or impose rules is do a negotiation and an agreement. This is the time we've got to get this much work done. What do you think is the right schedule for us to work to? And if you can't make that day, who are you going to tell? And if you don't want to be in that position, then who's going to take your spot? You need you need to think ahead. Mm -hmm. mm. But it's always negotiation. Yeah. And what are some similarities and then what are the the differences or what points would there be difference working with different Aboriginal communities in different parts of the country? Mm. Are, are there, I guess, commonalities that you might find working with the you know, Mornington mob as opposed to, say, Mornington Peninsula mob? Well, the big difference is that those of us that are born or come from mob... Um, down south is that you know um, we're repairing and reviving language and song and dance it's not just there you have to go hunting for it and a lot of the time particularly around the song and the dance like the, the songs and the dancers mm, it's hard to find one that is that has survived colonization down south so that whole revival stuff is you know it's a whole different process about um, seeking the knowledge keepers of those stories and then working with artists like yourself you know to bring knowledge of musical composition of songwriting and and then you're working with linguists in community to it's a whole different process when you start working with um, dreaming and stories from down here that are essentially passed to one another in English and then have to revert them to their original language which then has to be composed and then a dance created for it. And as exciting as that kind of work is, there's also a level of grief and trauma associated that on the projects I've been in, I haven't seen dealt with successfully yet. Like, because, you know, when you go into those projects, you know yourself, there is a realisation amongst all of us, whether it be privately or quietly, it's never really spoken much out loud about how much has been lost. There's no space for actual grieving or mourning, which probably should happen, in order for real new growth to begin. 
when you're making, creating something new down south, there always seems to be um, a level of hurt and anger and loss and trauma that is carried through it, mm. which affects everyone in the process in different ways. But mm. And so that comes out in the work or just Not the process? Not necessarily in the work, but in the process and in relationships. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm and not sure what that. I'm not sure what we need to do down here, and well, you know, in other parts of southern Australia too. Maybe it's maybe we need to. Maybe we just need to hold some great big, fucking mourning ceremony or something that goes for days, months, however long it takes to mourn exactly what it is that we've lost to actually come to terms with some things we will never get back again. You know? Mm. So maybe we can let it, let that go. Mm, I don't know. So then when you go about writing new songs and choreographing new dances for some of the cooler nations, how do you go about putting together certain moves and melodies, rhythms? Well, that's always been collaborative. Like, you know, there's been you, me, Maria, Emma, Delane, Marie, quite a few of us in that one, working with um, designated elders from different, different mobs who have taken leadership roles in, in, in those projects who bring knowledge, cultural knowledge, stories, um, language in some instance, uh, historical documents in some instances, you know, talking about, um, you know, different uh, styles or movements that had been recorded. But even then you've got to sift through those kind of anthropological documents with a real keen eye because you have to then reinterpret it again. Mm. Because you're just reading or you're looking at a viewpoint from um, an anthropologist, generally from either England or Berlin, who has written their account through their European lens, which you then have to reinterpret. Mm. Um, there's a bit of that sleuthing to do. There's, I think there's a mixture of, of that. There's the research stuff that's involved. There's the direct kind of um, transferal of knowledge from elders and community members who have knowledge from various sources, um, usually recorded. Um, some have been passed down stories and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but then there's also that thing of instinct. Like there is, when you're looking at creating dance, like Maria and I both come from the same generation of NASDA. And, you know, you learn very quickly that there are certain things, certain memories that you hold in your body. And you can see it in different mob. Um, because in, initially when we started, you know, like the Project Tenderum, we had a, we had a pretty blank slate, didn't we? Like there wasn't really much other than what the elders could 
tell us about what they wanted to do or what might have happened back in the mid-1800s when the last Tandarum um, mm. gathering happened. So, you know, there were things, you know, all we could do as the artists contracted on that project was to bring in the knowledge we, we already had. And, you know, Maria and I came into that project going, okay, you want to do traditional dance? Right. So that was a mix of me and Maria um, bringing in the dance styles that we know around the country that we have permission to teach because, yeah, and that's the other thing, in, you know, like when I'm in Top End, you never do, you never convert like sacred ceremony into contemporary performance. It's only the public dances that you're actually allowed to use. Mm -hmm. um, so down here, you know, we're creating ceremonies around um, totems and seasons and stories that we're still not sure are meant to be public or not. Mm. <laughs> but what's the, yeah, what's the difference if something is, you know, public or private and why does it have to be that distinction? Because that's law, James. That's, you know, those, those private and sacred ceremonies are, are sacred because there are only certain people that are meant to be there, there are only certain people that are meant to take part in it for. Um, it's not for everyone. Yeah, there are but, certain things yeah. that aren't for the entire community. Everyone knows they're happening, but you know, when boys go off for initiation, there are ceremonies there that mm. other people don't, you know, particularly women don't know about. Same with women. There are, um, you know, and we're playing in that space down south, you know, doing the best we can to revive some of the traditional practice that might have been. It will never be what it was. But because we all come from broken line, you know, in terms, broken line, particularly in terms of um, ceremonial song and dance practice, there are those questions around, and I think we all do at some point, are we doing the right thing here? Do we have the right information? Where is the information coming from? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at is what are the, you know, say the benefits of keeping those certain songs and certain ceremonies um, secret, their law and that, and only mm -hmm. certain people can perform or even hear certain songs. You know, how does that help the community? Oh, but you, you look, I mean, we've seen it ourselves, you know, in projects like Tandarum and... Were you and Bunurang Nagi with me? Uh, the one we did with Annie, the one I did with Annie Carolyn in St Kilda. No, I might have been just taking photos of that one. Ah, so you that one, the Tandarum stuff, and all the other kind of little projects that go on around the state. Oh no, wait! I, I think I, um, you came into the studio and you recorded some songs, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, at uh, up there at Songlines. Yes. Uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, coming in. Yep. Yeah, so that, we that's did. How, that's how I was involved. Yep. Well, the one thing that you see in those projects, and what the benefit is, is you see um, confidence and pride 
in mainly youth, but also in the adults as well. It's that, yeah, cultural pride, which then in turn builds confidence. And I think that's the biggest, and strength, um, that's the biggest benefit I see, mm. often. Mm. All right, so I guess getting back to things like Tandaram and the Bunwarang Nagi. Mm. So how do you navigate that balance between ceremony and performance? Well, mm. I don't treat, I mean, the use of the word ceremony um, publicly, I've never treated as such, as sacred or as a ritual. It's always a performance because mm -hmm. all of these projects always lead to performance outcomes. Yep. Very public performance outcomes where anyone's invited and that anyone actually don't know the context, that don't really know the context or history of what the quote ceremony is about. So in order to do that, it's always has to have, it always has to have some kind of performative element, which is explicit so that people can latch on to an abstract concept really quickly. Um, I don't actually see them as ceremonies, they're performances. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I remember part of the... The uh, intent might be there to, to be, you know, to approach it as if you are approaching a ceremony or a ritual. But when you have an audience who doesn't know what the, the ritual is or the symbols are, then it just becomes performance. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it seems like most of the time that people get to practice traditional dance and culture, it seems to be at least down in the southern states for a performance outcome, whether it's mm -hmm. going to be some food like Tandaram, the people are opening a conference or something, yep. then the time spent to then rehearse and to, um, to actually practice or make new work has that purpose as opposed to, you know, say, back in the day when that was for culture and for... Where kangaroos, kangaroo hunting season's on. Ceremony. Mm. Yeah. We don't hunt kangaroo anymore, so there's that ceremony gone. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah so, so how does that uh, how does that work? You might have noticed it up in the top end a bit more where they're, you know, they have a bit of both going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how does that then influence the culture and does that... I think we're at a really weird stage because, you know, the revival of language and, and everything that comes along with that, you know, the song, the dance, the, the performance, because, you know, you, you're just saying then about, um, you know, all of this kind of cultural revival maintenance work generally does lead up to some kind of public performance and in doing that you're already having to go by whitefella time because that that performance date is locked in you've got your production week lock, locked in before then all your bloody songs and all your recordings have to be like over the line and logged in before x and then back from there you work your rehearsal dates so you're working um aboriginal 
ceremony like you're putting on a theatre performance. Mm. Like it already in its structure yeah. is is a bit off kilt. You know what I mean? Um, mm. And how does that affect the culture? Well, it's a double-edged sword, I think. Um, on the one hand, like I said, it does build cultural, cultural strength and pride, particularly in the youth, bringing back language. Um, of course, uh, that's going to strengthen, you know, personal and community identities. Mm. But we're in that, and we have been, not just our generation, it's been here for 230 years, of balancing having being in two worlds mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the challenge because we are doing it but I don't know how successful we are at doing it you know what I mean especially when yeah the dance practice the song the is is all performance based Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'm just holding on to that um, ideal that, you know, we get back to what, what it once was, but fully knowing that it will never be. So maybe we're just in that tricky middle bit where we're defining what, how we're going to evolve into next phase. Yeah. Maybe that's where we are. Yeah. How we can have it both. Yeah, so some of the things I wonder about is we're creating some new works which is expressing culture. Mm. But then, as you say, you know, our culture, say, for blackfellas living in the city, might be more going to the ATM rather than going hunting, hunting. kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, so also wondering where you find you've been able to strike the balance well with keeping things authentically traditional mm. uh, and using the contemporary as a vehicle for the maintenance of culture without necessarily diluting culture. Well, the interesting thing was, like, mm, so when we started Year and Boy, when we put on Year and Boy last year, um, at the opening ceremony, which you composed, um, the protocol ceremony before that, which we made for only First Nations people were allowed, no white fellas were allowed. And in that space, there was no mobile phones, no posting on Facebook, no Instagram pics. That was kind of like, if we're gonna actually meet as First Nations people, to be welcomed on the country, let's just do that. Let's put away the phone. We're not going to document it. Just be present. And that produced... That produced an interesting moment in terms of people getting up. And not everybody... You know, some people performed contemporary versions of their traditional song. Um, but I think in, if you're talking about authenticity, I think maybe it's more authenticity of 
or, or integrity of why you do it rather than the product. Okay. Perhaps. I think that's more important because what happened in that kind of gathering before we opened Boy. Yeah, it's just people were, were just present and God, we were cold. I mean, we had fires burning, but it was dark and it was May and it was Melbourne and it went on for ages and way too long. <laughs> and everyone wanted to sing and every, some people wanted to sing back. Oh, anyway, but the thing was that we were there for a purpose and we weren't going to move until spirit told us it was over. Mm. rather than a production schedule. Yep. So that, I think, might be the difference. The product didn't matter so much what people came up and offered. It was more the intention and the integrity and authenticity of that moment rather than run by a clock. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, well, I've got to ask, how was the whole year and boy experience for you? God, it'll be a year ago now and a year till the next one. Um, oh, from where I was, madness, absolute madness. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was good. It was good seeing a whole bunch of mob, you know, that we, that we all know and love, but very rarely get the chance to see. Um, no, it was great. Lots of big conversations, lots of big dreaming. Lots of, um, an interesting experiment to just present a contemporary First Nations Arts Festival. So like the protocol ceremony, any kind of cultural slash traditional kind of um, expression, we made that a rule that it was done privately, it was done with First Nations only, it was never out for public to see. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for some of the reasons that I've already explained about, you know, about being, um, having integrity with what we do with that and not sharing it with people um, who don't understand it. The whole, you know, that there are people that don't understand it, that use our culture as, um, for consumption, for various reasons, whether they want to pride themselves and, you know, how liberal they are or whatever I don't know um, and three I'm kind of getting sick or tired of giving our culture away to people who don't deserve it <laughs> you know what I mean like, right. especially when you're living in a society where you've got um, you know a government that can go around can put invest time and money in some five-year bullshit consultation about the constitution and then within two minutes across media shoot down a recommendation you know or a mm. statement from the heart you know when you're living in a society like that they don't know they don't deserve why should we keep giving do you feel that though somehow with the sharing of culture and uh, i guess the opportunity for non-Aboriginal people to mm. then, you know, see and experience that there might be potential appreciation for 
Aboriginal culture and, and therefore gets a greater... But I think it goes... I think the sharing stuff goes beyond just putting on a lap lap and doing a dance for people. Like, like the sharing and the knowledge that could be shared more is, I reckon, in land care, in child care, in elder care, in all of that kind of stuff. That's where I reckon the sharing, because that's about cultural values, and that inf could influence a society. What's a 30-minute what's a dance in Fed Square going to do to change people's attitudes? You well, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, well, I, I guess... like I mean, I love it, and yeah. God bless them and all of that kind of stuff. Good on them. But really, you know, you come and you watch a, a, a 30 minute ceremony slash performance and people clap and everyone goes, oh, isn't it great? Oh, yay. The Aborigines got their culture back. Um, and then what? Well, I guess that's the thing, like various art forms can be this entryway that people mm. have a chance to then see culture on display and, and it can be that but see that's where point. I find it's more interesting in people like artists like yourself like Maria Randall who are using um, and there are many others but you two as an example who are using in your specific discipline like you with music Maria with with dance is using like traditional methodologies and different dramaturgical um, forms you know like you experimenting with traditional music composition to make contemporary um, experiences or compositions. Maria the same, using traditional kind of um, ceremonial methodologies to create purely contemporary dance work. That I find exciting. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, I think those expressions, people understand where we're playing with, what we're playing with, because we are um, working with knowledge but putting it into to new systems and new presentation styles and contexts that are more accessible. Because, you know, you, I've been at those Tandarums before in the Bunwurrung Nagi, and you look around the, the ring of that audience, and, yeah, they're loving it, but generally every second one has a raised eyebrow, kind of like, what's going on now? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. So how effective is it? Well then, yeah, if they had that question, then they could perhaps... But they never do, though, James. Investigate. No. They never do, though. That's the thing. And that's where I'm sort of like going, well, why are we sharing stuff like that? You know, when the opportunity, particularly around climate change and all of the knowledge there, cultural values. That's why we we did the thing at Yurimboy with um, the Elders Lounge and made our, our front of house staff, you know, put rules on the audience. No, elders go in first. Elders get to walk into the theatre first. You have to wait. When the elders are comfortable, then you can go find a seat. When the show stops, nah, everyone sit. Elders get to move out first, wait. Mm. You know, just those little things that I think have more of an effect in terms of the way we see the world, yep. what our values are. Then what is Urine Boy for? What, what do you want people to get out of it? And 
people as in Melbourne audience and Aboriginal artists? Um, well, Melbourne audience, just exactly what I was saying about how how do our how can our different cultural values coming from many different parts around Australia and around the world, how can our cultural values presented to you in very contemporary contexts influence you when you walk out the door? That's what I'm interested in with Year and Boy. But for artists, um, Melbourne, statewide, national and international artists, what Year and Boy for really is a platform for bigger exposure, for more opportunities. Mm. Yeah. And to try and build connections with mob nationally and internationally so that we can start making our own trading systems. You know, people would call it international touring, but generally you have to follow their rules. But if we can open up Yerimboy and Melbourne as um, a place where that, that trading kind of starts and then we build the trading routes out mm -hmm. between us on on those terms rather than the way it is done don't know what that answer is yet but anyway we can just create critical mass because with critical mass comes a whole lot of minds and a whole lot of new ideas that you didn't even know existed mm. yeah cool um, it was yeah, quite interesting what you were saying about the ceremony that you had where people got to share without phones and without mm. uh, non-First Nation people there. Through that practice then it, you know, it is an, you know, more of a traditional you know, Indigenous practice in, in a way. I kind of wonder as to your thoughts on then what makes a certain arts practice Indigenous or you could say that it's indigenously influenced so say in mm. that ceremony if i was just to get up there within that context and play, play your guitar yeah play mm. guitar and play i don't know play a beatles song but that's indigenous performance isn't it see because there is that argument that just by getting up as an aboriginal person and performing that it's aboriginal performance or indigenous performance whichever term you use there's that argument is it yeah but see i question it too because then you've got um you know, and it's the same thing. If you because then, if you've got that Aboriginal artist who, and I can use dance because that's where I'm more most comfortable. But if you're scoring, a, um, if you're scoring a whole composition, a dance composition, by using um, uh, methodologies, say, you know, from Martha Graham or one of the Western uh, kind of forms of composing and scoring dance, then how is that Indigenous? Because mm. it ain't. Yeah. But then the argument could be that because you're Aboriginal doing that, you're influencing that with your culture, with your... I still don't get it and I don't know if the question... I don't know, that question is weird. But then, you know, when you're um, curating your boy, mm. I could imagine that you are deciding on certain pieces of art which are 
yeah, which are indigenous in a way. No, well, the only mandate we, or the only rule that I lay down, like, I'm finding that um, there's a lot of festival directors, curators, da-da-da-da-da, that curate by theme. And I don't do that. Um, you know, with all the research that was put out by Australia Council back in 2015, 2016, and about, you know, the kind of lack of opportunities or even us getting up on stage, why put limitations on mob to get up on stage? So I see my job really as to create space and facilitate it. Mm -hmm. So the only rules that we have at Yirrimboi is that every project is First Nations or Aboriginal, Indigenous, First People, whatever word you use, it's lead. So we don't, we don't put anything up that is choreographed by non-Indigenous, directed by non-Indigenous, written by non-Indigenous. Those are the only rules. You can make a work, you can put on a work about whatever the hell you want to put on, as long as you've got an Indigenous-led team. Okay. Mm. How's that go with audiences? Say, you know, if someone is making a, a piece of dance, which who was it, like Martha Graham? Yeah. Yeah. Which, apart from the creatives, then maybe even the dancers aren't indigenous. Mm. Then I could imagine that audiences wanting to, you know, go to an indigenous arts festival or an indigenous oh, um, yeah. performance, then they would want. And they want to soak up all of our traditional culture. That's what they do. They want to come and they want to have their little ooga booga moment. And you don't get that at Year and Boy. Because the big thing with this one, and we did have performances like that, like Lara Kramer, um, Cree um, choreographer from Canada. She had made a work which is very kind of like, oh, how would you describe it? Really punk, um, kind of, yeah, punk performance art, durational kind of thing. And she used two non-Indigenous performers to do it. And, but you know what? Because it was an Indigenous-led team, that's the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. Because it's you mob making the choices, not some uh, non-Indigenous dramaturg or director in the room telling you what to do having final say. Yeah. I think that's the difference. And with that, and at Yirrimboi, you saw heaps of different types of expression. But it was mob making the choices to do that. Yeah. Mm. And then on the other side, I wonder that you might have, I'm sure you have non, well, people who don't have a, a drop of Indigenous blood you know, in their veins, who would know a lot more about culture and, and language and, and arts practice than I would, mm. then if they were to create a piece of art, you know, visual art or dance music, that could be like purely or partly inspired by traditional practice, then would you consider that to be Aboriginal art, despite the fact that they're not Aboriginal no. But then say, okay, say, you know, it's, it's some of these ceremonies, like uh, we, you know, have our 
traditional dance ceremony and, and then we invite the you know audience to get up and dance mm. and then show a white follower mm. you know like how to how to do the kangaroo or do shake mm. a leg or mm. that then in essence that's like the white person doing an, an aboriginal dance so that dance is but they've been aboriginal. given permission to do that for a, a finite period of time mm -hmm. there are rules around it yeah yeah I guess in regards to... But when you've got mob appropriating, when you've got non-Indigenous artists appropriating culture or leading teams where, you know, the historical practice of getting a black fella on to just tick the box and give the cultural consultation. Can we do that? Can we say that? Can we use this? Can we use that? Can we steal that? Yep, thank you. Good. Put it on stage. Yeah, you're in boys more, not so much about, yeah, we do have that thing about, you know, no, not even, don't even have that thing about excellence and quality control. Um, it's more about uh, integrity, having us as the leaders and decision makers in how we express and represent ourselves. Mm. That's what year and boy um, Yeah, endorses and advocates for. Mm. Yeah, the freedom yeah. for artists to do that as long as, you know, they're working within Indigenous-led teams and not being told what to put on stage by a white fella. Yeah. Mm. But then do you see a day, or would you also, you know, like to see, say, something like your idea of the traditional idea of the elders being brought in first and and having a chance to leave uh, before everyone else, be a part of, say, mainstream yes. theatre and such. Yes, and that's why we put it in there, and that's why we had the Elders' Lounge, because the Elders' Lounge wasn't necessarily just for Aboriginal elders. It was for any elder that walked in that room, walked in the meat market. Mm. Yeah, because I think it's that's the experience. Yeah, but then would that, say, if Malt House started having that as part of their regular you know, way that they I have would audience. encourage that yeah yeah all right because that's the way we inf influence the way this whole bloody ship runs yeah instead of you know that kind of does something to you I had a couple of Maori friends from a theatre company over for dinner last night and it was and they turned around um, Tuesday night and said it was just little things like that that leave an impression because they'd come into the meat market to see a couple of shows and loved the fact that audiences were told to sit and wait mm. and respect the elders and give them a chance to get out of their seats first. And they went, it's those little things that you remember, not the show, not necessarily the show itself, but those little things. Yeah. But and the that's where we can that's where we can influence and affect I reckon all right but then that wouldn't necessarily be cultural appropriation if white people were to adopt that method not if we're leading it all right because it's all it's all a matter of um, leadership and and also permissions really what what are we willing to share I don't think we're at a point where you know like what Australia wants is for us to just hand over the language that has just been un uncovered so we can name bridges and buildings and all of that kind of bullshit that 
No, you don't know. Um, there, there are deeper layers of it around what is Aboriginal and what are Aboriginal cultural values that people need to learn and experience first before they can start naming a bridge or a building. Hmm. Don't you reckon? Yeah. Um, but then I'm also like understanding that there's only so much time that someone working in an office might have to dedicate towards Indigenous protocols and knowledge before they you know go on and, and build the next whatever that yeah I, I guess you know driving down you know Wurundjeri Way uh, for example living in or going through suburbs you know which might be named after you know Aboriginal people or totems mm. and that um, I'm not necessarily familiar with the, the process but it does give me this warm feeling of respect of being for present yeah and mm. uh, and that reminder not only for myself but for people living there that um, of the Aboriginal history of this place yeah I mean I'm yeah I'm not saying we should we shouldn't because it is happening but it's getting to the point now where you've got dignitaries wanting to do welcomes in language themselves when we you and me as Aboriginal men don't even know how to speak our language yet you've got dignitaries wanting to do their speeches opening their speeches in local language what do you think about that I, I think it shows a great deal of respect for the language and but why should it just be handed over to them when they've got the power to change certain things legislatively that they don't, yet they will take on board the bits and pieces they want in the public mm. to present, mm. you know, a, um, a facade that everything's okay, that we're, we're respected. Yeah, but, but say, um, yeah, I guess you're in boy for example, or, or even like, you know, Melbourne Festival mm. and the funding that it might get from arts bodies or government, mm. um, then in that way, then there's that certain giving of resources and time and, and a platform mm -hmm. for, you know, Aboriginal That's culture. and the rent, James. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But, but then, uh, I know I, I also, you know, <coughs> see it as non-Aboriginal people paying respect to language and, and culture in a way. And I feel that, you know, if, if say, you know, a government official or a non-Aboriginal person is able to access language, then what's stopping Aboriginal people from accessing their own language? Oh, I think that's a whole other conversation. And that, that goes deep into um, opportunity, shame, trauma, a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a, another big conversation. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I, I mean, know. I, I know that. No. Mm, yeah. I'm. I'm. Mm, I'm not actually sold on on anything one way or the other. Like I said before, I think we're in a real tricky space right now. I'm trying to navigate what will be, or what could be. There doesn't seem to be the right answer anywhere. I don't know how you feel, but nothing ever feels like the right way. 
But then you are creating you know, well-respected work by audiences and people involved in the projects. So you know, what are you directed by? How do you feel that you are going in the right direction of what you are producing? Mm. Well, number one, the elders I have around me is a good source of um, a good check-in. And then most of the time it's uh, what you would call gut instinct or I do believe that I walk with many ancestors around me and I mean they're all in our DNA. There's traces and remnants of them still in our DNA, memories and lives. That's what I try and listen to more. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, gut instinct. Yep. Mm. I know you've got to go, but uh, yeah. so much more that would be um, great to discuss about. Uh, mm. I'll, I'll give Blood a bit of a plug and um, Urine Boy and I guess your, your, your other stuff. But uh, next, Urine Boy, uh, mm. so next year, 2019. Yep, in May. Uh, yeah, what can we expect? Will it be uh, different? What, what, what do you have in mind? Um, different. A little bit different and a little bit same, same. There are a couple of things that we tried out that we want to perfect, you know, like Willem Nalut at the meat market. Like, that was the first time that we'd, um, well, I'd run a venue. Um, so we learnt a lot from that. And we'd love to do that again, you know, things like the Elders Lounge and all of that stuff is coming back. Um, but yeah, different in terms of we have many more partners and many more collaborations going on. You'll see a lot of different international um, collaborations between our mob here and mob from around the world. Um, I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, no, that's all right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, no, it's still um... going to be... Yeah, with the... Um, like, actually, we will... Yeah, the one thing that we will be doing, and you'll meet very soon, is we've gathered around um, a First Peoples Curator's Circle. So profiling um, mob and their big ideas. And you'll meet them soon. Yep. So just share it. And that's the whole thing. You know, like I said about how I've always seen my job to be create space, facilitate space. Again, in terms of curating a festival, that's the next step that we've, I've taken with this one is to create and share that space. So you'll meet quite a few mob in that curator circle that are working on the festival and elements of programs. Mm. Yep. Mm. I said that that was the last one, but one yeah. very last thing. Is there any advice for me or any other artists who are looking to bridge the gap between the traditional and the contemporary? Um, only two things. Listen. Just listen. And, yeah. 
either listen to um, elders, lawmen, lawwomen, knowledge keepers, just really listen, or whether that be listening to country, and yeah, follow your gut, because you know when something's not right, <laughs> instinctively, yeah.